I'm they probably not a present listener. No, that's a lie. I am. They'll just think that I'm talking to a dummy and that I'm pretending that you're here and I'm lying to them. Dancing with myself. <laughs> that's it. I'm all over the map right now. I'm so sorry. I like Are it. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to rules your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be best. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. What up, Hannah? Uh, not much, Deanna. Hi. Hi. Welcome to Good Witches, Bad Bitches, everybody. Welcome to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. This is a weekly feminist podcast where we talk about women through history and their friends. <laughs> yeah. All right. I like that. All the all the stories that we tell are ones that probably should be made into movies. So yeah, literally. Um, listen well if you are someone in Hollywood, because we've got some shit for you. We can come right into a, a room and pitch some ideas. We have almost a hundred movie ideas for you. Oh my god, the number of movie ideas on here. I really want, I still I mean, really minus want one. Because Ann Lister just had a really great series yes. made about her. Gentleman but, Jack, who we did in our very first year. Yeah, our very first Pride Month. Very first Pride Month. You heard it here first. That's right. Maybe, um, depending on if you'd heard of her or not. Was that HBO mm-hmm. that did the sh- show about her? Mm-hmm. Um, so one idea has already, already been, been made. taken. Yeah. I want one about Stagecoach Mary. I really want a Stagecoach Mary movie. Badly. That would be phenomenal. I also want a movie about Medubula. We've got lots and lots of ideas for you. Um, so just hit us up and we'll get in a room and, and brainstorm. Dude. But we won't do it for free. <laughs> Damn straight. Travel us out there. Put us in, in five-star accommodations. Yeah. Give us a an eco-friendly car ride. Ooh. Or just give us an eco-friendly car that we can drive around ourselves. There we go. And we will happily come to meetings and... Uh, give you some great ideas. Give you some ideas of films that we would love to be executive producers for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't taking this that seriously until you said executive Hannah! producer. And now... I'm fucking there. Oh, yeah. We have an obligatory cinematographer attached to mm-hmm. all movies. Yes. Benjamin, thank you. <laughs> our, our wonderful producer, who is also a skilled cinematographer. Plug. Yeah. Well, yeah. We've been watching Carmilla um, scenes. Uh, we've been doing a rough cut. And some That's of the film that Hannah made yep. not that long ago. Back in ben. November. Yeah. And some of these shots are fucking ridiculous and some i don't like i don't understand yeah we'll we'll watch some after this but you guys are not you don't understand what you're in for not even ready you're not even ready but uh i'm gonna not talk about that this week i'm talking about something totally different and we're gonna forego an intro because apparently yours is quite in depth yeah mine is like an intro already with some other stuff so i'm doing i'm doing something a little bit different this week it's kind of similar to what i did with the eniac programmers oh okay um because i was really curious about doing doing someone who was related to prohibition in some way because january is january 1919 is when prohibition was originally passed and so i was like january okay cool that's like january is the perfect time to do something about that and then i realized 
that prohibition was really um a like a female heavy time in terms of like temperance the repealing of prohibition all of the elements that went into that that you know 12 years 12 years ish it was longer than i thought it was yeah it was a long time it's like a decade plus some um plus some change plus, and some change but women were really at like the forefront of all of those um movements and so i was like okay maybe i'll just talk about because it was the kind women of, of like prohibition. A, a temperance movement wasn't it yeah it's, and there was a lot of anti-german sentiment if i'm not incorrect there's some World War really I, like fascinating makers yeah there's so much fascinating shit and i will obviously i won't be able to get into all of it and i won't be able to get into all the women um there are a few women that i bookmarked for future episodes because they were just hell yeah super cool but um i have a fuck ton of sources this week Yeah, Politico, Smithsonian Mag, PBS.org, Wikipedia, History.com, Britannica, uh, and then a few more that are sprinkled throughout that I will mention when I come across them. Um, But I did, so I I wanted to give two perspectives on prohibition, and they came out, these two articles that I'm going to read from came out last year on the 100th anniversary. Oh, yeah. And one of these articles was written by a man and one of them was written by a woman and so it's interesting some of the differences between the two but they both bring up really interesting points so the first one i'm going to read is from politico and it's by a writer named mark lawrence schrad it came out uh, january of last year so he writes 100 and now it's 101 but 100 years ago this month January 16th, 1919, the 18th Amendment was ratified, was ratified, enshrining alcohol prohibition in the U.S. Constitution. And for the past hundred years, we've largely blamed women for that. Why? With the obvious exception of the women's rights movement, perhaps no other social movement in in American history is as synonymous with women as temperance, and none is as vilified. The standard trope back in the 1920s, when prohibition was in full force, was that the policy was quote, put over while the boys were away, fighting World War I. If only the men had been home, prohibition could have been avoided. Of course, women could not vote at the time, and it wouldn't have mattered because there was no popular referendum put forth for prohibition. The only women who voted for the 18th Amendment was the only woman who could vote for it, Jeanette Rankin of Montana. Yep, we did an episode about her. The country's first, and at that time, only congresswoman. Anecdotally, I've long asked colleagues, students, and historians, who's the most famous prohibitionist? The answer is always Carrie Nation, the extremely religious prohibitionist who was famous for smashing saloons in Kansas with a bat. Whoa. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about her um, in a little bit. But he goes on, the only problem is that Carrie Nation died in 1911, almost a full decade before the 18th Amendment was ratified. Or consider Frederick Douglass. On his temperance tour of Britain in 1845, Douglass, who, like Nation, died well before Prohibition was passed, claimed... According to our president. (laughs) My God, yeah. Because they hang out? Is that what it was? They talk on a regular basis? They're like phone buddies? Who knows? Um, He claimed, if we could make the world sober, we would have no slavery. Mankind has been drunk. 
In his autobiographical narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, American slave, he explained that keeping slaves stupefied with liquor was, quote, the most effective means in the hands of the slaveholder in keeping down the spirit of insurrection on the plantations. Oh, that's like early straight edge people, basically, because it's about how the man keeps us Mm -hmm. like the capitalist system or whatever the way it, it is if we if we keep our brain numb with alcohol and drugs then we can stay in the status quo yep exactly like an early version of that yeah and so for apparently and i didn't know this but for a long time temperance and abolitionism were very ta- like hand in hand they went hand Weird. in hand in part because of what he's talking about right that liquor was used as kind of a weapon or i guess you know anesthesia yes a sedation um so contrary to popular description i'm also cutting out a lot of his um his article it was pretty long but contrary to popular description prohibitionists weren't hell-bent on taking away the individual's quote right to drink from its very inception the temperance movement targeted not the drink or the drinker i mean i think some temperance activists targeted the drink and the drinker but um He says they targeted the drink seller. Prohibitionists aimed at the predatory liquor traffic of wealthy capitalists and saloon keepers who, together with a state that relied disproportionately on liquor revenues, got rich from the drunken misery of the poor. That's really interesting because I feel like so much of our system is the opposite now where we always um, vilify or or penalize, penalize the the sinner, not the the sin, as -hmm. it were. Yeah. Where it's, you know, we we don't like immigrants who come to take our jobs or whatever. Right. As if it's not the fault of the companies advertising in foreign countries for them to come in illegally. Right. Who don't get punished. Yeah. It's just the immigrants and their families who get punished. We put a lot of emphasis on this idea that, like, we as individuals have have choices. <laughs> And and we don't often, but for whatever reason, in our current like social politics, that is a truth some people think is yeah. uh, is real. Right. Um, but yeah, it is interesting. It's like, and a lot of these people um, are uh, Republicans. You know, people who wanted to ha- make the government do something about alcohol. Yeah. Which at this... Jeanette Rankin was a Republican. Exactly. So nowadays, it would be like, well, like you said, it's the sinner's fault. They just shouldn't drink. It's a moral failing. It's a moral failing. But it was the Republicans at this time who were like, no, like, we need need the government to step in and actually make something happen here. Um, So yeah, the 18th Amendment doesn't even outlaw alcohol or drinking. It prohibits the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors. So what if you get some? If you have it, it, if you import it from some, like if you go to Europe and get wine, you can bring it back with you. But yes, to answer to answer that question, if if you have your hands on it, it's not like drugs because they didn't want they didn't want the government or local businesses to be making money off of it. So yeah, kind of interesting. At its core, prohibition was a populist attack against predatory capitalism and its corrupt ties to government power. Prohibition was designed to protect consumers from unscrupulous sellers of potentially dangerous substances, just like the progressive Pure Food and Drug Act and Federal Meat Inspection Acts of 1906. Um, 
moral moralizing Bible thumpers, that's what he says, like Carrie Nation, were only one part of a broad prohibitionist coalition. Focusing only on activists like her, though, produces a wildly incomplete picture, which our brains try to make whole by filling in the gaps with deeply rooted and misogynist social biases. Um, and he, he goes on a little bit more, but basically he's saying that, like, we blame women for prohibition and temperance, but, like, is that really true? And so I found it interesting when I found this Time article by Olivia Waxman, which basically says, yeah, it is true. Like, prohibition and temperance were largely um, female, you know, driven uh, movements because of very specific reasons. So she says... The social movement behind prohibition had been brewing since the mid-19th century, and gender dynamics were always a part of it. Um, Says Daniel Okren, author of Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition, men would go to the tavern, drink away mortgage money, drink so much they couldn't go to work the next day, beat their wives, abuse their children, and that's what launched the beginning of the temperance movement. I mean... That's what makes it primarily like a, a, a women-focused movement because women were the ones who had to deal with this and and had no power of their own to leave, to right. make their no own agency. money. They had no agency. Um, Frances Willard, later president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, spoke of the problem in an 1874 speech known as Everybody's War. She described how a man goes to the bar and, quote, loiters away his time and fritters away his earnings and then goes home to the house where he is best loved, to the best friends he has in the world where they love him better than they do anybody else. Yet upon that wife that loves him so well and little children clinging about his neck, he inflicts atrocities which imagination cannot picture and no tongue dare describe. In 1853, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton founded the Women's State Temperance Society in upstate New York. Stanton would even refer to alcohol as the unclean thing. It became clear to both of them that giving women the right to vote was the only way they could ban alcohol. As Anthony put it in 1899, the only hope for prohibition was putting the ballot into the hands of women. I had never, ever heard of that, but in a lot of the articles I found, suffragism and temperance were, you know paired they were they were sister issues in in a similar way to abolitionism and temperance but suffragists were notoriously racist as well Mm -hmm. so yep it it's interesting it's also interesting because i was just listening to a recent episode of the dollop that they did on mother jones who was a contemporary of all these women but she was a workers rights advocate and working class advocate Mm -hmm. and was anti suffragist because she kind of saw it as yeah. like a uh a elitist elitist cause yeah that didn't matter she was like i'm raising enough hell yeah and i don't have the vote it's fine yeah but so it's interesting all the 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 complexity of this and in seemingly things that are sort of cognitively dissonant from one another by our standards today mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super fascinating. (coughs) Um, So she goes on 
Uh, in that way, prohibition and women's suffrage went hand in hand, with the former only actually going into effect once the 19th Amendment was ratified with the 1919 passage of the Volstead Act. So basically, when the 18th Amendment passed, yeah. Woodrow Wilson said, nah, and vetoed it. Really? Yes. And so it wasn't until women got the right to vote that the Volstead Act went into play, which basically overrode Wilson's veto, veto and forced the 18th Amendment to be implemented. Whoa. Isn't that insane? Yeah. So basically, women got the right to vote and it and it launched us into prohibition in that way because otherwise Woodrow Wilson would have just vetoed it and it would have been over and done with. Interesting. So once it was law, it was a woman who enforced it. 32-year-old assistant U.S. Attorney General Mabel Walker Willebrandt. As the highest-ranking woman in the federal government back then, and one of the first women uh, appointed to a sub-cabinet position, she oversaw prohibition through three presidential administrations. She didn't come from a temperance background, and she didn't make statements uh, linking prohibition to feminism, but she acknowledged the key role that women have played in ridding society of vice. She said, women must use the scrubbing brush and soap in a Buffalo Inquirer article in 1924, referring to how women were being tasked with cleaning up the country. So now that we've talked about those two viewpoints a little bit, I want to talk about some specific women. Um mostly mentioned in these articles and then one who isn't so the first is carrie nation because we mentioned her and her saloon smashing and you know yes. she was the face of the women's temperance movement for a long time so um when carrie married charles gloyd at 21 gloyd how do you gloyd how do you spell that g-l-o-y-d just like you would think. Just like you would think. Lloyd. Charles Gloyd. Ugh, man. When she married him at 21, just after the Civil War, she was infatuated. He seemed worldly and glamorous, having served as a doctor in the Union Army. Ooh. Yeah. Gross. Um, it means he's probably amputating a lot of limbs. Yeah, I don't think it was particularly glamorous. glamorous. No. But he, he made it seem that way, and he also made himself out to be... Um, you know, really pacifistic, I guess, when when they wanted him to help execute Confederate prisoners of war. He was like, no, I cannot. You know, I am a doctor. I will not do such a thing. Yeah, you must not do harm. Right. And she felt like, oh, my, you know, what what a good man. And so even though her parents were like, hey, that dude is a drunk. Don't marry him. She was like, I'm going to marry him. A drunk doctor from from the 19th century. What a fucking surprise. Yeah. He had an alcohol problem. Her parents saw it. She did not. And she married him. Um, Yeah. And like she regretted it pretty quickly. He was drunk at their ceremony. No. And pretty much every day. Not even at the reception. Yeah. He was drunk at the ceremony. I guess some people do get drunk for their ceremony because you get that like champagne and beer. That's like a tradition. I don't know. I always get offered champagne in the morning when I'm a bridesmaid. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the traditions were in the 1860s. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, After she became pregnant, she ended up leaving him. because, Yeah, because of the drinking. And went back to live with her parents. And this is sad. Her husband died a few months later 
per his health records from, quote, delirium tremens. I don't know what that is. Delirium oh. tremens is, is alcohol um, uh, withdrawal. Okay, so that. <laughs> or from pneumonia. It's com- also a delicious beer, but... Are you serious? Yeah, it's a really good beer, but it's called Delirium Tremens. But yeah, it's it's when you shake because you, you're an alcoholic and you're recovering and you can't. It's the tremors. Okay, so he either died from withdrawal or from pneumonia compounded by excessive drinking. It's probably both. Probably a little bit of both. And that was just a few months later. Although she rebuilt her life, eventually remarrying to a lawyer named David Nation... The memory of her first dysfunctional marriage influenced her for a long time. And she and David weren't terribly happy either, but she was a failed teacher. She had tried to become a teacher after her husband died, and that didn't work out. And so she was like, I just need to marry somebody. Did they have any kids? David, her and David? I don't think so. I think it was just, I think it was just her um, child from Gloyd. Gloyd. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so she was like, still kind of pissed that she had like wasted so much of her time on this dude i would too and that and now she was in an unhappy marriage um or just like an you know she was like ambivalent towards her marriage so as she got older nation became increasingly religious and her husband did too he became a preacher they moved to kansas where nation organized a local chapter of the women's christian temperance union The union, founded in 1874, had the goal of banning alcohol because of the suffering it caused to families, specifically to women and children whose male relations drank to excess. At a time when women lacked legal rights and recourse and had to depend on male breadwinners for some or all of the family income, an alcoholic, and perhaps violent spouse, was a really fucking big deal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so the union proposed to cure this and other vices through empowering women to vote and through the social ministrations of middle-class white women. Right. Speaking of, you know, some of those issues. Um, and But that really spoke to her because she was like, oh, hey, my husband was an alcoholic and left me fucking destitute with a child. And I see this as a really big issue. Right. So she joined, but it didn't seem like they were making enough noise for her liking. And so she took a more direct approach to the Prohibition Crusade that, um, than many of the women who surrounded her. And in 1900, she began to walk into saloons, areas that were deemed off-limits for any respectable woman, and caused, to put it mildly, a commotion. <laughs> she would read Bible passages, sing hymns, and destroy whatever she could with a hatchet. Literally Whoa. everything. She would be covered in beer and liquor by the time she was done because she'd just go through smashing up all their fucking barrels. And she was arrested that one time. And then she was arrested over and over again because she kept doing it. She started carrying a hatchet around with her and she oh sold. Yeah. She sold hatchet pins as a way to finance her work and what? bail. <laughs> She bailed herself out, for the most part, with money she made on these fucking little hatchet pins. And if you wore your hatchet pin around, then people knew you were a temperance, you know, a supporter. Walk around with a hatchet pin. Uh Uh-huh. It's kind of punk rock. It's pretty punk rock. Also, she, so her name was spelled C-A-R-R-I-E, but she changed it to C-A-R-R-Y. And so her name was Carrie A. Nation. Yep. 
Yep, carry a nation, carry a nation. And she trademarked it so that she could use that on merchandise and all sorts of shit. It's very shrewd. It's very shrewd. And thanks to her infamy, she spent the rest of her life getting paid to go on speaking tours and basically made her living as a temperance activist until she died in 1911. So she was like... You know, in that first article I read, he talked about how people, they always think of Carrie a nation when they think of prohibition. Right. Um, and that's why. <laughs> because she was violent, basically. Like, she took a hatchet to all these fucking Kansas saloons and ruined a lot of crap. Um, so the other person I wanted to talk about was Mabel Walker Willebrandt because she was the assistant attorney general who... At the age of 32. At the age of 32 was tasked with upholding all this shit. So she was an American lawyer who served as an assistant attorney general of the United States from 1921 to 1929 during the Prohibition era. She was notorious for Ruth... uh, She was notorious for relentlessly enforcing the 18th Amendment, the prohibition against the manufacture and sale of alcoholic beverages, earning herself such nicknames as Prohibition Portia and First Lady of the Law. Super nice. People really liked her. That's sarcasm. Willebrandt studied law at USC, earning a bachelor's degree in 1916 and a master's in 1917. Good on you, girl. Yeah. Her early... Get that education. She did it in in night school, too. Like, she she earned all of these degrees in night classes and was an... uh, I think she was an elementary school principal during the day. What? To make ends meet and to pay for her degrees. Shit. Yeah. But her earliest experience in law was as a public defender for women in Los Angeles. Starting in 1916, she was the first female public defender in L.A., as well as the first public defender to handle only women's cases, including providing pro bono services for sex workers. Interesting. Yeah, she was kind of badass. I mean, she was really badass. Like, the whole prohibition thing is unfortunate because, like, she was just really attentive to her job. She just really wanted to do her job right, and people really disliked her for it. Um, Frank Doherty, Doherty. Doherty. Doherty, that's such a hard name to say, apparently. Frank Doherty, her mentor and law school professor, recommended her for consideration for a legal position. Frank Doherty, her mentor and law school professor, recommended her for consideration for a legal position in the cabinet of U.S. President Warren G. Harding. Yeah. In 1921, Harding appointed uh, her assistant attorney general, a position that made her the highest ranking woman in the federal government, and the second woman to hold that position, which I was like, second woman? Who was the first? And I didn't look her up. So maybe that'll be <laughs> a, a, another episode someday. <laughs> You're delightful. We shall see. She was tasked with overseeing federal tax laws, the federal prison system, and with enforcing the recently passed Volstead Act, the law that overturned Wilson's veto. So though today she is better known for her efforts to apprehend prohibition violators her contributions to reforming the federal prison system were equally or arguably more significant huh yeah she was responsible for establishing the first federal reformatory prison for young male first-time offenders so juvie um basically the creator of juvie 
Um, And then with increasing numbers of women being prosecuted and and imprisoned for violating prohibition law, she created the first um, women's prison. Wow. The first federal women's prison. I guess I don't know about statewide, but yeah, she was like, okay, well, all these women are breaking the law and, you know, we need to put them somewhere. We need to put them somewhere. So I'm going to make I'm going to make some changes on that on that front. Wow. And uh, she also pushed for inmate education opportunities and employment, um, which today has some, I think, unintended consequences. You know, the the idea. So she she's the reason that uh, inmates can work in prison and like. They opened a shoe factory in Leavenworth, Maximum uh, Security Federal Prison in Kansas, and it was a big victory, but now we use it as, like, a modern form of slave labor. Yeah. So, you know, problematic now, but at that point, it was really good because it was rehabilitating. Yeah. Um, So she gained a reputation for rooting out corruption within the prison system, like, all this great shit. She was recognized with a medal from the National Committee of Prisons and Prison Labor in 1925. Um, she do, 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 was not she was not an active supporter of the Volstead Act prior to becoming assistant attorney general, but she was determined to enforce it and went dry once she was in office. So she stopped drinking just to like say, okay, if no one else like if I have to arrest people for this, I'm not going to do it either. And she had virtually no supporters within the Harding administration, including her own superior, Attorney General Henry Daughtry. Um, He was closely affiliated with a corrupt circle of federal employees, apparently. And that was, I guess, part of why. Um, Though fighting a thankless battle and attempting to enforce a law that seemed futile, she accomplished several key measures. She curtailed smuggling along the Florida coast. Rum running. Rum running. By lobbying for an expansion of the Coast Guard. Oh. So they intercepted rum runners before they could reach the U.S. So technically, I guess what they're doing is not illegal. Just frowned upon. Yeah, just frowned. Just not, not, yeah, not great. I guess they probably were profiting off of it by selling it. Yeah, I'm not sure, like, what the legal gray it's, it's area is there. It's very gray. She also brought down two of the largest bootlegging operations in the country, one in Alabama and the other in Savannah, Georgia. Hey, that you I lived like? there. You did. She tried the Big Four of Savannah for tax evasion, which was her other purview, while simultaneously digging up information on their bootlegging business. So I had to look them up because I had never heard of, of the Big Four or the Savannah Four. But apparently they controlled a fleet of ships that ran loads of booze from Scotland, France, Cuba, and the Bahamas. Once shipments were brought ashore, they were broken down and run by road, typically in trucks disguised as potatoes or in faux oil tankers. Smart. Savannah Four. Um, She resigned her position as Assistant Attorney General in 1929. She had campaigned vigorously for the election of Herbert Hoover to the presidency. And when he won, he hired someone else as Attorney General. No way! Yeah, she didn't get promoted. These hoes ain't loyal, man. Nope. Especially not when you're a woman. Like, I don't need to promote you. You're a woman. You don't need to get any higher than you are already than you already are. Bullshit. Yeah. And she'd also withstood so much negative press for her work on, the, on behalf of Prohibition that she was just kind of like, mm, never mind. Um, that's fine. 
I did think this was interesting. Her residence in Los Angeles gave her many connections in the movie industry. <laughs> and her friendship with Louis B. Mayer landed her the production company uh, Metro Gold Mayer as a client because she went back to, right. you know, right. public defending slash being a lawyer. Mayer in turn connected her to stars such as Jean Harlow, Clark Gable, Jeanette McDonald, all of whom became her clients. Huh. She represented the Screen Actors Guild for nearly 20 years, defending it through the Joseph McCarthy-led Red Scare of the 1950s and helping to draft its, quote, oath of loyalty. Whoa. Ooh, it is a yikes. Now, but, you know, back then they were afraid of communism. Yeah. Um, Thanks, and- Reagan. Yeah, she continued to practice law until she died from lung cancer in, I think, the 50s, which, 1955. Was she a smoker? I don't, maybe. I don't know. She wasn't a drinker, but she was a smoker. Yeah. I guess everyone smoked back then. Back then, they didn't know. Uh, Though she had been one of the most famous women in America, she more or less slipped into obscurity until interest in her was revived with a character based on her in Boardwalk Empire. What? Played by Julianne Nicholson. What? Yep. The character is Esther Randolph. So anyway, she was another person who was responsible for not necessarily being involved in temperance, but enforcing, you know, prohibition, enforcing the 18th Amendment and making sure that that was, uh, that that ran as smoothly as they wanted it to run. Dang. And even though it didn't win her any friends, because people were pretty much right away like, oh, Prohibition? Yeah, we're not going to. We don't. We don't really care. We're not into that. Even people in the government were like, we're not into. We're not into that. So she didn't have any friends, but she did it. She was. She didn't have um, any friends, but she did her damn job. Yes, ma'am. So, (coughs) um. I found a really interesting article on mcny.org, which is the Museum of the City of New York. Yep. Um, Yeah. I'm familiar. They had an exhibit a little while ago for the women who dismantled prohibition. Who dismantled it. Yes. And so I thought I would talk about one of the women that they talked about in their article. Um, But they had a little preamble, and it says... The Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, founded in 1929, showed that not all women supported temperance. New York socialite Pauline Sabin led the charge after hearing L. Boole, the Brooklyn-based leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, declare that her support for prohibition represented the women of America. And Pauline was like, mm, but you don't represent me, though. And I don't agree with you on temperance. So so on the heels of the successful suffrage campaign that won women the right to vote in 1920, yeah. right. the WONPR, Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, had in fact initially supported the 18th Amendment. But they had come to believe that prohibition had led to a surge in unregulated and particularly underage drinking. Yeah, no kidding as well as a growing sense of distrust for the rule of law. Right. So the WONPR's opposition to prohibition, just like the 18th Amendment itself, was not only about drinking, but about the government's role in regulating behavior. Ha <laughs> ha. Super fascinating, right? Yes. 
in no small part due to the WNPR, prohibition ended in 1933 with the ratification of the 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th. <laughs> that whole time was like, oh my God, can you just make up your fucking minds? Yes. The group had become the largest repeal organization in the country, with 50,000 members in New York the year after its founding, and by the time of prohibition's demise, 1.5 million reported women members nationwide. Awesome. So 1.5 million women by 1933 were like, fuck this shit. I need a drink. I need a fucking drink. After all this time without one. It didn't do what we wanted it to do, you know? Like, we thought things would be better, but they're actually worse. Yeah, imagine. Imagine. As a bipartisan, single-issue organization, the WONPR was able to unite women and urge politicians who may have disagreed on other issues. And although it was founded by wealthy Anglo women, which proved useful when it came time to fund all of their activism, the group denounced prohibition as, quote, class legislation that favored the rich. As opposed to temperance... Yeah. As opposed to temperance groups who were often anti-immigrant and emphasized the drinking habits of the working class, the WONPR sought out non-white and working class women to join their ranks. <laughs> Are you confused? It is confusing. This it's just, whole thing. It's interesting it's everything and how it was so different. I know. I know. So Pauline Sabin. Pauline Sabin was a wealthy, elegant, socially prominent, and politically well-connected New Yorker. Her father was a railroad executive. Her uncle founded Morton Salt Company. Her grandfather had been a prominent Nebraska Democrat who served as Secretary of Agriculture under Grover Cleveland. And her father had served as Secretary of the Navy to Theodore Roosevelt. So she was, like, rich and well-connected. Yeah. Her education included private schooling. She attended school in Chicago and Washington before making her debut into society, because that's what you do when you're rich. You debut. You're a debutante. Yep. You know. Um, She was very active in politics and became the first member of the Suffolk County Republican Committee in 1919. Okay. And like uh, many women who ended up joining the WNPR, Sabin at first supported Prohibition. She was a mother. And prohibition had promised a society with lower crime and violence, better right. health, right. higher employment, and greater prosperity. And did it accomplish any of those things? <laughs> organized, organized crime grew rapidly. Toxic illegal alcohol blinded and killed people. Yes. Corruption was widespread in law enforcement. Uh, police and prohibition bureau agents routinely violated constitutional rights. <laughs> the entire administrations of many they, cities were they, corrupt. They would stop doing that today. I know. God, I know. <laughs> they got into the habit and they never got out. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, gangsterism, which I didn't know was a word, but apparently it is, according to MCW, MCN, MCNY.org. Gangsterism flourished. Tax revenues plummeted. There was <laughs> growing disrespect for the law, and the list goes on. So, no, it did not do what they thought it would do. Yeah. Um, And there was something that bothered her even more than the unintended effects of prohibition, which was the harm it did to children and young people. So police records showed that intoxication among young people had increased 
tenfold. Ooh, how do you like them apples? That's That's a big old yikes. Yeah. And it's because saloons didn't care because alcohol in in and of itself was illegal or at least, you know, going and selling it in in these speakeasies. Yeah. It was all illegal. And so they weren't checking IDs because there was no drinking age. Right. There was no drinking age. So they were just like, all right, you're 12. Have a drink. Can you pay for it? Great. Exactly. So, yeah, it was a big fucking problem. Uh, So Sabin was an effective organizer thanks to her political activities, and she founded the WONPR in 1929. It was completely nonpartisan, even though she was a Republican. The WONPR had components for specific segments of the population. They included the Service League of Younger Women, the Business and Professional Women's Group, also the Women's Hotel Committee, and the Committee of Foreign-Born Women. WONPR speakers talked before waitresses' unions, women's clubs, and laundry workers. They spoke with African-American groups, Polish groups, farmers' groups, and many more. I mean, in the way that Temperance was like, oh, are you a person of color? Well, you know, we don't need you. Like, we don't want you, we don't need you. Pauline was like, we're not going to do that. We're going to appeal to everyone because this is everyone's issue. By the time of repeal, it was the largest anti-prohibition organization in the country. It was also several times larger than the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She successfully argued for repeal by turning the original temperance argument on its head. Repeal would protect families from crime, corruption, and the drinking that prohibition had created. Repeal would return decisions about alcohol to families where they belonged. Isn't this insane? I I know that it's about like the decision to what you want to do belongs to you and your family, but it's like alcohol belongs to families. (laughs) That's true. That's that is interesting wording. Um, Yeah, maybe not quite what she meant, but yeah, I thought this was funny. Lee Colvin, chairman of the National Prohibition Committee, described Sabin and the other women members of the WONPR as bacchanalian maidens. Parching for wine. But that's like a real thing. Like the female members of the cult of Bacchus mm-hmm. were real. And yeah. they just drank wine all day long. Yeah. So that's hilarious. So he's describing them in that way. Because uh, they were worshipping their god by uh-huh. drinking wine. <laughs> uh-huh. Wet women who like the drunkards. I'm sorry, wet women? Wet women. As opposed to dry? Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, drinking women. Uh, Yikes, yeah, yeah. that wording in a modern context. I know, I know, <laughs> but it had to be said. Who, <laughs> like the other drunkards whom their program will produce, would take pennies off the eyes of the dead for the sake of legalizing booze. Oh my God, shut the fuck like, up. Like, can you calm yourself down? Get your boners out of the way. <laughs> One prohibitionist supporter wrote to Pauline Sabin that... Quote, every evening I get down on my knees and pray to God to damn your soul. I didn't think that was where that was going. No, I know you didn't. (laughs) In the end, 74% of Americans soon voted in favor of repealing prohibition. Hooray! Pauline Sabin appeared on the cover of Time magazine in 1932, uh, and that was in recognition of her effective work promoting repeal. She died in 1955. And that is all I have here about Prohibition and the women of the Prohibition era. 
But that, that is was fucking insane. I think it's kind of amazing that like I had to piece together so much content for that yeah. that like nobody is really looking at like the articles either look at one side or the other side. They either mention mention temperance or Pauline Sabin and the WONPR, but they don't talk about any of this in full. Weird. How, like, temperance was a, a largely women's movement to begin with. Right. And that prohibition, the repealing of prohibition, was also largely a women's movement. So it's just a women's fight. It was a women's fight. And, and men through. profited it off of it by becoming gangsters and illegal yep. peddlers of this shit. Yep, yep, yep. Which women recognized and were like, okay, okay, okay. I see okay, how okay, I'm okay, being, okay. like, okay. taken advantage of. I, I just wanted to not have a drunk husband, and I see that I'm not going to get it this way, so it's time to fucking try Let's something else. cool our tits. Yeah. It's really, it's so interesting. Mm. So temperance and prohibition, women's fights in, in a large sense. I mean, obviously men were involved, but, you know. They usually are. This was this was like a decade plus of of you know the Roaring Twenties that we think of in such a specific way, and women were largely responsible for that, and they were also largely responsible for taking it away. So so interesting. That blows my mind. And that is the that's the women of prohibition. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. So it is January 29th, which is, you know, a few days after the anniversary of Prohibition going into effect. That's okay. But it's okay. Um, So in 1595, William Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet is thought to have been first performed today. Oh. Yep. It was officially published in early 1597. Uh, This is interesting. 1892, the Coca-Cola Company is incorporated in Atlanta, Georgia today. They still there. They still there. Um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven was first published. No in kidding. 1845. This isn't a spookin' season. I know. Well, like, what the fuck, Edgar? Come on. It's pre-Valentine's Day. He's like, yeah, that's true. Let's be real. Every day was spookin' season for Edgar Allan Poe. I know. I bless that man. 1861, U.S. state of Kansas is admitted into the Union as the 34th state. Oh, my stepdad's from Kansas. Oh. This one is important because we did an episode on her, but in 1891, Liliu Kalani is proclaimed Queen of Hawaii. Ooh. It's last monarch. Yep. Um, 1920, I just thought this was funny because you love Disney 
world in Disneyland and Disney rides. I do. Um, but Walt Disney starts work as an artist with RC Slide Company for forty dollars a week in 1920. All right. <laughs> his he got was getting his first uh, jobs. Yep. Um, let's see. Do I want to? Oh, in 2014, archaeologists discover the oldest Roman temple oh. from six, six. No, no, no. The sixth century BC. That was weird. It just says six C, and I was like, what does that mean? Archaeologists discover the oldest Roman temple from the sixth century BC at Sant. Omobono? Okay. Okay. Um, and in 2018, Toronto police arrest landscaper Bruce MacArthur for the murder, um, yeah. for murder of after remains of, of at least five people were found in potted plants. He, and he murdered a lot of gay men. He murdered a lot of gay men. And that was one reason why I wanted to mention him, because Toronto police ignored the cries from the gay community for a long time about the fact that they knew there was a serial killer in their midst. Yep. They knew it, and yet it took them until 2018 to get justice. And yep. they finally got some semblance of justice, or at least they were heard enough for this guy to get caught. There's so. a great uh, CBC podcast about this case. Really? Mm-hmm. What is it called? Do you know? Uncover. Ooh. On that note, on that note, I think we are at the end. Um, you can find us on social media at GWBB Podcast. Pretty much everywhere. You can find us on Patreon if you are so inclined. Yep. We are patreon.com slash GWBB Podcast. Um, also, our Ko-Fi. Thank you to those of you who have given us a coffee recently. We much appreciate it. That is ko-fi.com slash GWBB Podcast. And uh, email us your stories or tidbits at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, please. And that's about the it. That's the it. All right. Peace out, witches. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. (laughs) Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. 
Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moonbounce. Moon Bounce.